0: I hope you got a um, copy of the outline uh, as it came in. Um, It will be very helpful to you. Thank you, Gilman. And uh, if you need to go and get one, um, are you getting one, Paul? Gus? No, I'm I'm fine. Does anyone else need one? Because Paul and Gus will help you. If you need one, put your hand up. There we go. Gilman, Ben. Anyone else? Don't be shy. It will be a help to you. And if not today, um, then uh, uh, going forward, it's got a couple little charts and things in there which uh, uh, hopefully be a blessing and a, a help to you. Well, uh, uh, as you know, tonight we begin our uh, Sunday evening sermon, sermon series uh, going through the book of Re- Revelation and that's going to keep us occupied uh, for a while, um, hopefully till Jesus comes. Uh, that'd uh, fix everything. Uh, so in uh, Sunday mornings, we're going through Genesis. Uh, Sunday evenings, are going through uh, Revelation. Now when you think about it, uh, there are many interesting comparisons and contrasts that can be made between the two books. Genesis tells us of paradise lost. And uh, Revelation speaks of paradise regained. In Genesis, the Garden of Eden gives way... In the book of Revelation to the city of God. The tree of life in Genesis is seen again in the book of Revelation. The serpent appears in Genesis and meets his doom in Revelation. Sin and sorrow and tears and the curse all begin in Genesis. And all vanish in Revelation. The book of Revelation naturally completes the circle of revealed truth that's begun in the book of Genesis. Genesis, we could say, is the foundation of biblical revelation. And the book of Revelation uh, would be the capstone of God's prophetic word or God's revealed word to us. <coughs> revelation is a book that has intrigued and fascinated multitudes of people throughout The century, it evokes more interest than any other book in the New Testament. It's like a great big magnet that draws people towards its prophetic message. People are intrigued by its contents, fascinated by its prophecies, stand in awe of its mysteries. I think the reason for such absorbing interest in the book of Revelation is that Revelation is a book of prophecy. A book of prophecy in which God reveals, Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, things which must shortly come to pass. We are time bound creatures. We're creatures who are limited by time. Okay? We, we have been in the past but we, we can't go back there. Okay? We live in the present, we, we're s- stuck in the present. We can't go back and we can't go forward we don't know we know what's in the past we can't go back there we we don't know what's in the future and we can't go there but we want to know what's in the future what does the future hold for us what will happen to us what will become of us will we be will we get rich or will we become very poor Will our future life be happy and peaceful? Or will it be full of strife and sorrow? We go to the doctor, the news is not good. Will the treatment be successful? We watch the news, we get very concerned about international events. Will there be a world leader with real solutions who will usher in a golden age? Or will the world be destroyed by a nuclear war? Or will it be climate change, disaster, or some killer virus, or or alien invaders? What happens when death comes? Is death the end of everything? Or is it simply the beginning of endless ages? And if there is life after death, what will it be like? And what can we do to prepare ourselves for it? What's the the meaning and purpose of our existence? Our fascination for the book of Revelation is great because our interest in the future is high. And yet many people shy away from serious study of the book of Revelation because they find its message hard to understand. It has been described as a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma. Many people treat it like the... Priest And the Levite treated the man beaten up in the story of the Good Samaritan, that is they passed by on the other side. Bewildered by its symbolism and baffled by its striking imagery, many people just avoid the book. And yet far from being an incomprehensible book, Revelation's purpose is to reveal the truth about the future. The title of the book given to us in the very, very first verse says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. It is a book of revelation. Its purpose is to reveal, not to conceal. God wants to show, that is not hide, but to show his plans for the future. Furthermore, for our encouragement, God promises a particular blessing to those who will read the book diligently and those who will give good heed to the book. He says that at the very, very beginning, verse 3. There's a blessing if you read this book and God reminds us at the end of the book, it repeats the promise of blessing. Those who will take the time to diligently read the book of Revelation. So brethren, if you want your life to be blessed of God... And to know what God reveals about the future and to know the, all the blessings that will come to us because we know that. Then diligently read and re-read and study the book of Revelation and be part of uh, when we do that every Sunday night uh, uh, for the next little while. and Be part of that. What God will do in the future is recorded here. What God wants us to know about what he will do in the future is recorded here. The scope of this revelation precedes the immediate events of John's day when he first received these visions. It takes us all the way through right to the end of the church age, right up to the rapture. Where we see in the book of Revelation that the church is taken up out of the world and taken up into heaven. The scope of Revelation continues then through seven years of tribulation when God's wrath is poured out upon the earth and this book of Revelation continues on beyond that into the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom when he returns when he returns to the earth again and sets up his kingdom for a thousand years the revelation continues after that it tells us It takes us into ultimately beyond the millennium into what we might call the eternal state of a new heaven and a new earth. Remember Genesis 1 tells in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation tells us there will be a making of a new heaven and a new earth which God will create for his redeemed people. And if you're a Christian, I've just told you your future. That's your future if you are... Christian. Brethren, there need to be no concern in your mind that such promises and prophecies of God will go unfulfilled. Unlike false prophets round in biblical times or even in our present days, God's promises, God's prophecies are sure. The Apostle Peter tells us, he says, We also have a more sure word of prophecy. Interesting expression. The verses before, he's just been talking about the time when he was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he heard God speaking from him. Very, very rare thing. He heard God speaking with an audible voice. He heard it. God speaking to him from heaven. It was an amazing thing. And yet as amazing as that was, Peter tells us who didn't have that privilege. Peter tells us. That we have a more sure word of prophecy. What could be more sure than God's audible voice? Answer God's written word, God's prophetic word, the holy scriptures, Peter tells us, are more sure than any audible voice. He continues, he says, Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. For the scriptures, the prophecy that God revealed in the scriptures, came to us not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit. And they wrote it down exactly what God wanted them to write. What they wrote was inspired. What they wrote was inerrant. What they wrote was infallible. What they have written is providentially preserved. Brethren, if we would wonder whether these amazing forecasts in the book of Revelation will actually come to pass. Then to, we only need to look at the record compiled by earlier biblical prophets who were similarly moved by the Holy Spirit. There have been hundreds, hundreds of biblical prophecies which have been already been literally and meticulously fulfilled. These prophecies were commonly Long range prophecies. The fulfilment of them would be in the far, far distant future. So far that men could never have guessed that this would occur. Men could never have analysed today what these things would happen so many hundreds of years in the future. Furthermore, such prophecy are unique to the Bible. They're not found. You won't find them. Prophecy in the book in the Quran. You don't find it any of the other religious writings uh, or, or, or philosophical writings. They're not found in the writings of modern self styled prophets like Nostradamus or Joseph Smith. Biblical prophecies are genuine. They are divinely inspired. They are sure in their fulfillment. And the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is the final and definitive assemblage of all of God's prophecies relating to us for the future. It incorporates all of the prophecies of the Old Testament which remain to be uh, fulfilled. All the prophecies of the New Testament which still remain to be fulfilled. All, it's all brought together in the book of Re- Revelation. God's final assemblage. It's like the terminus of God's prophetic word. It's like central station. All these lines come to this one point of the book of Revelation. And God has given it to us. And he says, you read it, I will bless you. I will reveal to you what I want you to know about the future. If you'll read this book, Revelation is a book of prophecy. But it's more. Revelation is a book about Jesus. It is preeminently, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now as we think about the Bible as a whole, the Bible is a one-volume library of many books, 66 books that make up our Bible. And within those 66 books of the Bible, there are books that are biographies, there's a, a hymn book in there, there's poetry books, there's a love story, there's chronicles of war and history, collection of personal letters, But if you were to choose one category, of which all the other categories would be subcategories, possibly you might choose history. The Bible is a book of history, past, present, future, history. And if you chose to say, well, you know, that's that's the, the main thing about the Bible, you wouldn't probably spell history the normal way. You'd rather spell it as two words, his story. Because that's essentially what the Bible is. It is his story. It's a story of Jesus. He is found almost, almost on every page of scripture in some way or another, whether it be in some type or figure or some illustration. He's always there or thereabouts in the shadows. But when we come to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Christ doesn't settle for being in the shadows any longer. He is there in full view. He has the limelight. He is their centre stage. The spotlight is on him. And in this wonderful letter that we call the Revelation. The exiled Apostle John. Transcribes this vision that he has on the Isle of Patmos. And in three dimensional technicolor as it were. He tells us about the risen Christ. The glorified Christ, we have, we, have a, we have a description of Christ that we have like in no other place in the script. This is the way the book begins. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. The first chapter. It's stunning in its description of the glorified Christ. And John tells us that Jesus then speaks a prophetic word to seven churches. And Jesus gives us a glimpse into the future which affects Christians everywhere. One thing that John tells us, he reveals about Jesus, is that Jesus continues to interact with his churches. John tells us that it's Jesus and Jesus alone which has the authority to, to judge the world. As we think about the churches and what's going on in the churches, what's it all about? Who's in the middle? It's, it's Jesus. And as we think about the future of the world, all the judgment that will be poured out upon, there's only one person who is able to do it, that's Jesus. I want you to note in your minds, at least, and maybe you can begin to mark these as you read through yourself. I want you to note the terms that John uses to describe Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 1, he's called Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. The first begotten of the dead, the prince of the kings of the earth. Chapter 1, verse 8, it's Jesus who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 11, he's the first and the last. It's repeated in verse 17. Verse eight. And he's the one who lives. Chapter 2, verse 1, he's the one that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Chapter 2, verse 8, he's the one which was dead and is alive. Chapter 2, verse 12, he's the one which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Chapter 2 verse 18, he's the son of God who has eyes like unto a flame of fire and his feet are like fine brass. Chapter 3 verse 7, he is holy, he is true. He has the key of David, a key that openeth and no man shutteth, that shutteth and no man openeth. Chapter 3 verse 14, he is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Chapter 5, verse 5, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He is the lamb in verse 6. Chapter 19, verse 11, he's the faithful and true. 19, verse 13, he's the word of God. 19, verse 16, he's king of kings and lord of lords. 22, verse 13, he's alpha and omega. 22, verse 16, he's the bright and morning star. You come right to the very, very end and it says in chapter 22, verse 21, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. All the way through. It's all about him. Revealed this way and revealed that way. Revealed this way and that way and this way and that way. There's always more. This awesome letter given to churches everywhere comes from Jesus and it centers on him. It begins with a vision of his glory, his wisdom, his power. Portrays his authority over the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Then in heaven, as as someone in heaven is sought for who has the right, who's worthy to open the book. John says that he weeps. In heaven there's no one worthy to do that except the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus takes the book and opens it. And it's the same Jesus who will pour out his righteous wrath upon the whole earth. Chapter 6 through chapter 19. And this same Jesus will return in power to judge his enemies and to reign as Lord over all forever. Chapters 20 through 22. No wonder this last book of the Bible is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's going to be an exciting venture to walk through this book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, beginning next Sunday evening, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. Pastor Brendan will present that to us. But for the rest of our time this evening, I want us to cover some foundational information about the book of Revelation. Then I want us to establish some necessary guidelines for understanding the book. These things will help us to keep balanced as we go through. And then we'll provide a succinct overview that's going to help us to keep our eyes fixed upon the ultimate destination. And then we'll conclude with some practical lessons as we embark upon this series. So let's consider some foundational information to help us to understand. And you've got to have there a timeline which comes out of uh, uh, my Rory Study Bible. And the two things I just want to draw your attention to is on the left, uh, we have the timeline of Jesus beginning his ministry. Okay? This is when John began with Jesus. And then if you go to the other end of the uh, timeline, we have uh, uh, the Revelation written around about 90 to 96, somewhere through there, end of the first century. Of course, uh, John's Gospel and his three epistles written before that. The book of Revelation is the last message that God has for us. Now with that in mind, let's just think just a little bit about the background and the setting here. Revelation begins with John the Apostle. He's the last surviving Apostle. He's an old man when he writes this. He has been exiled to a very, very small barren island called Patmos. He tells us about that, chapter 1, verse 9. It's located in the Aegean Sea, about a little bit southwest of Ephesus. The reason he was there, he tells us, the 1 verse 9, he was there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He'd been banished because of his Christian witness. Roman authorities had banished him to Patmos for the cause of, because he was faithful to Christ. Now while he was on Patmos, John received a series of visions in which God outlays for John and for us the future history of the world. Before John was arrested and sent to Patmos, he was uh, ministering in Ephesus. Ministering around that area, in the, that, that, that church or those churches around Ephesus and in the surrounding area. And in seeking to strengthen those congregations, he could no longer, now there's in Patmos, minister to them in person. And yet being burdened for them and obeying the divine command, in chapter 1 verse 11 John, having received this vision, he he writes it all down for those churches to encourage them. And see, those churches had begun to feel persecution. I mean, John felt it himself. He was banished on Patmos because of it. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, church at Smyrna tells us about a man there, Antipas, who was possibly, probably the pastor, had been martyred for the cause of Christ. But the storms of persecution having begun to break forth upon them, would break forth in full fury upon these churches that were very, very dear to John's heart. And to those churches, John gives them this revelation. It's a message of hope. God is in control. He is sovereignly in control over all the events of human history. And though evil does seem pervasive, and though wicked men sometimes do seem all-powerful, their ultimate doom is absolutely certain. Christ will come in glory. He will judge. He will reign. He will rule. Christians will be rewarded for their faithfulness. Let's think about a couple of key themes here, particularly some Greek words. The word apocalypsis. Is there a Anglicized is there in, the, in Greek as well for you. The word means unveiling or disclosure. That's the word translated revelation. And although this Greek word only appears once in this book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, the Greek term apocalypsis functions as, an, as a title for the entire book. The word simply means to uncover something that's been hidden. Now, in the New Testament, the word apocalypsis can apply to several things. First of all, it can can, uh, refer to the development of God's redemptive plan, kept secret from the past, but now revealed. And that's the way that Paul uses that word in the book of Ephesians and in the book of Romans, chapter 16. It can also be used to reveal spiritual truth in the present. And Paul also uses the word that way in uh, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians 1. But it also can refer to future events in which God breaks forth into human history. And Paul uses it that way too. Interestingly, in the book of Revelation, all three concepts are here for us. Unveiled in the book of Revelation. uh, Yes, it does shed light on so many Old Testament prophecies. It does reveal spiritual truth to us. And it does point us to the ultimate revelation of God in Christ, working out through the world. An unveiling of things, events, truths, previously unknown. We also have a couple of other little expressions in Greek. Entakai, which means translated shortly. And engus, meaning at hand. And when Revelation says that Christ will come shortly, the Greek expression is entakio, chapter 1, verse 1. Or that his return is at hand. That's the other Greek word, engus, chapter 3, verse 1. These two terms mean that Christ's coming is impending, not immediate. They reflect the suddenness of Christ's coming. When he comes, it will come Suddenly, he will come suddenly. That's what the terms mean. It's not referring to, there's going to be just a short lapse of time before he comes. If scripture had meant that Christ would come very, very soon after, say, the second advent, it would use different Greek expressions. Short space of time. And John does use different Greek expressions when he's talking in the book of Revelation about short space of time. Two different ways, short space of time. This is not what he's talking about here. The terms that he used, chapter 1 verse 3, mean that when he comes, he will come suddenly and quickly and it will be off and running. Supports the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return. Christ could return at any moment and it will be in a moment. When he comes, it will be as quick as that. His coming is impending. There's also the Greek word homoios which is translated like, or resembling, or similar to. And the term homoios is used to draw out similarities between two things. It usually involves a symbolic correspondence, or one thing representing or resembling another thing. Jesus repeatedly used that word in his parables when he likened the kingdom of God unto these kinds of things. The book of Revelation does that a lot. It uses that word homoios twenty-two times, especially in those passages where the language is highly symbolic. And we who read the book of Revelation must keep this in mind. In many cases, what John saw was a, or what John wrote down was a symbolic representation of the thing that he saw. Some of the things that John saw were so hard to comprehend, so hard to understand. There weren't words in his vocabulary to describe what he'd just seen. And so he said, it's like this, and it's similar to that. And it's almost like, the, you know, the best words that I can use to describe it uh, is, is this, because it's it's like this, trying to put into words. I mean, you try to put into words what it is like to see and the glorified Christ. There are no words. The best that John can do under inspiration is to say his eyes are like this and his hair is like this and his words can't really describe his words but man it's like Niagara Falls, when he speaks. The book of Revelation is full of that. There's also the word, the Greek word, prophetia, prophecy. And in the New Testament, we find two types of prophecies there are predictions of future events, and there are proclamations of spiritual truths, often gained through spiritual revela- special revelation. Now, Many scholars agree that the book of Revelation be, be, belongs to the ancient genre of the apocalyptic literature. And in that literary style, the main purpose of the book would be to proclaim spiritual truth, which is previously hidden truth about God, truth about Satan, truth about humanity. But not necessarily truth about future events. Okay, this is what Peter was talking about before. And people, people prefer to translate it allegorically. However, the book of Revelation describes itself primarily as predicative prophecy. Chapter 1 verse 3, chapter 22 verses 18 and 19. That is revelation of things which must shortly come to pass. Things that will happen in the future. And then the last word that I just want to emphasize at this time is the word proskuneo. Which means to bow down before or to show reverence to, or to worship. And the theme of worship runs like a golden thread throughout the entire book of Revelation. Proskuno is a common word for outward manifestation of worship. It occurs 24 times in Revelation. It tells us very, very clearly many, many places that those in heaven, they're there worshipping God. They're upon the earth, but they're now in heaven. They're there worshipping God. God has delivered them, he's saved them, he's washed them from his sins in his own blood. They're there before the throne, they're worshipping God. You've redeemed us from our sins, you've cleansed us by your own blood. They fall down, and they worship God. Also talks about people on the earth, even in the midst of their struggle, worshipping the Lord, crying out to the Lord. Also talks about people on the earth worshipping Satan. There's a critical question for anyone who reads the book of Revelation. To whom will you bow down? To whom will you show reverence? To whom will you direct your worship? Will it be to God or will it be to Satan? Chapter 14, verse 7, there is an angel. It says, it goes around preaching the everlasting gospel. And he calls upon people on the earth to fear God, to give glory to him. The hour of his judgment is come. Worship him that made heaven and the earth book of Genesis tells us that God made the heaven and the earth at the very very beginning and one of the reasons he made that and made us in that is that we might respond appropriately to the God who made the heaven and the earth and that is to worship him not just for the fact that he's our creator certainly that but also on top of that because he's also our redeemer and what a redemption we find in Christ Let's secondly let's just share a couple of guidelines to keep us from extremes. Guidelines to operate on so that we don't adopt any extreme and unhelpful views. Firstly, we should prepare to expect the unusual when we're reading the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation is not like any other book in the Bible. Some Old Testament books, like the book of Daniel and like the book of Zechariah, they do contain similar or even complementary visions and symbols, but Revelation has no equal in the New Testament. And as we read John's description of what he saw and what he heard, we are bombarded with language and symbolism and imagery, the style of which we find nowhere else in the Bible. Initial confusion is normal. Failure to catch the, the big picture in the midst of all the detail, that's, that's a common thing. Now, the revelation doesn't package wisdom for living in short, succinct statements like we find in the book of Proverbs. Or doesn't construct logical arguments like we find in the book of Romans. Rather, revelation paints pictures for us. It presents drama for us that captivate our minds and captivate our imaginations. And that leads us to the next helpful guideline is we must restrain our imaginations. Because of the symbolic nature of many of the visions, some people try to wring specific and profound meaning out of every single detail. And the result is often a complex system for the end times that is built more upon conjecture and speculation than on the clear teaching of scripture. And to resist this overly imaginative approach to revelation, we need to emphasize the things that are clearly presented to us. Either in the book of Revelation or in parallel passages, supportive passages, in other places of the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture. And at the same time, we will need to content content ourselves with sometimes perhaps tentative conclusions. Or sometimes with something we might still need to suspend our judgment in regard to some of the particular details. And that's okay to do that. There are obviously some things that John saw and wrote down that he didn't fully comprehend. One season expositor describes the situation well. It says, if we were to err, it would be better to err on the side of interpretive restraint than on the side of interpretive excess. Thirdly, another guideline is for us if we ask four questions, and this is a true and tried method of Bible study, Bible interpretation, Uh, this is a good path if we can stay on it. Four questions. First of all, what does it say? That's observation. What does it mean? There, we're talking about interpretation. How does it fit? We're talking about correlation. How does it fit with the other verse, the other uh, portions of scripture? And then the fourth one is application. Okay, how does this work? What do I do practically with this? And this four-step method of Bible study and Bible interpretation works well for us with the book of Revelation. But just perhaps just a couple of stipulations. When it comes to Revelation, sometimes we're going to need to suppress our curiosity And settle just for the results of observation. And again, that's because the Apostle John obviously himself didn't fully understand everything that was included in those God-given visions. Sometimes we're going to have to content ourselves just with observation. But much of the time though, much of the time though, we can be confident in our interpretations that is based upon the context Based upon the interpretation of the book of Revelation with other portions of scripture, as we understand and begin to see how there is a correlation between the book of Revelation and these other, how it all fits together in the Bible, this is going to be necessary steps to get an accurate and helpful interpretation. And then once we understand the meaning of the passage or the prophecy, we can move on to the important step of application. I think most of the time our applications can be quite concrete and personal. Sometimes the application might be general and theological. But in either case, our goal has to be more than just satisfying our own curiosity for gaining more information, gaining more facts. The purpose of revelation, the purpose of God's word, is not just to inform us. The purpose is to change us, ultimately. The purpose is to change us, not simply to inform us. Let's work hard at getting our interpretation right so that we can get our application clear. So there's three guidelines that will help us as we move forward and keep us from extremes. And thirdly, I want to give us some very, very basic overview to help keep us focused. In your notes, you have a copy of a chart, that another one that comes out of the Study Bible. It's called the chapter topics of revelation and under that heading we have six columns, left to right, events, church age, tribulation, millennium, judgment, great white throne, eternal state. And Then the next row in the first column we can see where the events take place whether they be in heaven or on earth and they're the two places where all these events occur. Then it shows us which chapters in Revelation record those events and those locations. For example, chapter 1 tells us what's going on in the church age in a vision of heaven. While in chapter 2 and 3 tells us what's happening in the church age there upon the earth. Chapters 4 and 5 tell us what's happening in heaven while the tribulation is happening upon the earth. Which is described for us in chapters 6 through 19. Chapter 19 to 20. We see what's happening in heaven so that the millennium can happen upon the earth, chapter 20. In chapter 21 and 22, we have the eternal state where we have the new heaven and the new earth. We can see very simply that the, Bible, the, the book of Revelation prevents, presents events in chronological order, moving between heaven and earth as this was all unfolded to us. That's a very general and perhaps simplistic overview And maybe there's there's some slight variations on that, but it's a fairly good, albeit a simplistic overview, helpful chart, and will help us to keep on track as we navigate our way forward. But I said that the book of Revelation is not just a book of prophecy, it is also where the program of God is clearly laid out. It is that, and we can see that there. But the book of Revelation is also a book about Jesus. And so let me just highlight Jesus as we just walk through each of those sections. It's there in the notes for you. In chapter 1, we see the Lord Jesus revealed in glory. And a key phrase of chapter 1 might be, you know, his countenance was, as the sun shineth in its strength. This is Jesus revealed in his glory. And the focus there in chapter 1 is that the fact that Christ, he is alive. He's alive forevermore. He has this position of authority now. He's at the right hand of God. He has the keys of hell and of death. It's, it's all subject to him. It's all under his control. This is his glorious position in the world and amongst the churches. Chapter 2 and 3, Jesus, the Lord Jesus now takes inventory. He's revealed in glory. He takes inventory. Chapter 2 and 3. The focus on the seven churches, the key phrase is, I know thy works. He says it to every church. He knows exactly. And why wouldn't he know? Have you seen the vision in chapter 1? The vision that we have of him in chapter 1 is he is all glorious. He knows everything. He walks amongst the midst of the churches. He's taking inventory. In chapter 4 and 5, the Lord Jesus is there. Center stage. He alone is worthy. Chapter 5, verse 5, the key phrase. The lion of the tribe of Judah. That's Jesus. He prevailed to open the book when no one else could. The focus of uh, chapter 4 and 5, there's a throne, there's a throng, round about the throne. There is a search. Who's worthy to open the book? There's sorrow. No one is until the Saviour steps forward. He hath prevailed to open the book and heaven bursts into singing. Jesus alone is worthy. Chapter 6 through 19, the Lord Jesus judges righteously key phrase in those chapters the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb and the focus there is is different aspects of how the wrath is poured out it's poured out through seven distinct seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, three woes it goes on and on and on, the great tribulation in these chapters we're introduced to the dragon, to the beast, to the false prophet, to the harlot To Babylon, all subjects of righteous judgment. Chapters 9 and 20, it's the Lord Jesus who returns in victory to reign in majesty. Key phrase there King of kings and Lord of lords. The focus in these chapters is on the second Advent, on Armageddon. It's on Satan being bound a thousand years. It says it six times. Saints reigning with Christ a thousand years. The devil cast ultimately into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment. And then, chapter 21, 22, the Lord Jesus triumphant eternally. Key phrase there would be verses 4 and 5, chapter 21 there shall be no more death. The former things passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And the focus on a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem as the dwelling place of God's people forever and ever and ever in the eternal state. It's all about events, but it's all about how Jesus is the focus and the feature of those events. Four practical lessons to conclude as we begin this series. Number one, God's inerrant word is, Is a reliable map. No matter how difficult the Book of Revelation might, in some portions, be for you, for us to understand. However, however mind-blowing these visions may be, we can have confidence that God's Word will accomplish His purpose in our lives, whether we feel it is or not. For that assurance, go to. Isaiah chapter fifty five, verses ten and eleven, God says, As the rain comes down as the snow and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh to bring forth bud, that may give forth seed to the sower and bread to the eater. I get the picture there. The rain comes down, doesn't go back, comes down, it does what God wants us to do. So shall my word be. God says, that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish the thing that I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. And this is why we can be confident in the blessing that God promises to those who read the book of Revelation. Because God's word doesn't return to him void. And even though we don't understand absolutely every aspect of what it's saying, the big picture is going to become very, very clear to us. And it will be enough to guide us successfully through life. Secondly, God's sovereign plan replaces fear with hope. People all over the world today live in bondage to supervi- superstition, fear of the unknown, anxiety about the future. Not only do they question their own personal future, but many of them have overwhelming fears about the future of humanity everything's to be going seems to be going out of control there's wars there's famines there's disease there's natural disasters all these tragedies look like chaos is in control however the book of revelation demonstrates to us that no matter how bad things seem to be there is a god overall who is working out his sovereign plan and this book assures us absolutely that god will prevail in the end And knowing this basic truth and meditating on how it is that God will bring all things to this ultimate climax. This will replace our fears with hope and confidence, not in ourselves, nor in the circumstances around about us, but in God himself. And then thirdly, God's glorious son is worthy of worship. God's glorious Son is worthy of worship. The book of Revelation consistently and repeatedly points us to Jesus as the centre of prophecy. Or as John puts it, chapter 19, verse 10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the spirit of prophecy. This is what it's all about. It's testifying of of Jesus. Brethren, let us praise God. For what Christ has done for us. Chapter 1 was a verse 5. He's loved us. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. Let us praise Christ for what he has done. Let us praise Christ for what he is doing. Interceding for us in heaven. Dwelling in us by his Holy, Holy Spirit. He is our comforter here. He is our advocate there. Let's praise Christ for what he has done, what he is presently doing. But brethren, let's also praise the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation gives us another reason to praise him for what he will do, for all that he will do for us in the future. As such Christ remains at the centre of our worship. He is to be the focus of and the reason for our obedience He is the source of all of our blessings, both now and into eternity to come. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the Bible. Thank you for the treasure that we have in the scriptures. Thank you especially as our focus and attention has been tonight on the book of Revelation. Well, thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for promising to bless us as we read it. This is what you want us to know. And Lord, I pray that we would respond well. And not just to the, 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 the desire that we have within us to, to, to know the future. That's something which is innate to us. I pray that we respond to that. Look in the right place. Go to the word of God. Go to the book of Revelation. But I also pray that we'd respond to the conviction by the Holy Spirit which would draw us into this scripture. That's that's what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches today. Here is God's word that you need. Here is the truth for churches today. This is where the church is headed. These are the things that will lead to the rapture. Christ will come at any moment. He'll come quickly. Then will follow the tribulation. A time of terrible judgment upon the earth. Christ will then return, set up his kingdom, fulfill every promise, every covenant blessing. Beyond that, there is an eternity. Whereas everything in this creation that's been damaged and affected by sin, is made new because of Christ, all because of Christ. Lord, there's good things for us. And Lord, I pray that we'd uh, uh, respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit uh, to give ourselves, give good attention to this book. Uh, Lord, help us to do that together as a church. Help us to benefit from this together as a church. Encourage one another uh, in these things pray that Christ might be given his prominent, indeed his preeminent place in our lives. Even as this is the place that you've given him in all creation and history. Indeed, in all eternity. We offer our prayers, we offer our praises in Jesus' name. Amen.